Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Get Out by Honey Brother. This is a psychedelic rock and soul group from Youngstown, Ohio. They are featured Ohio musical artists tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. We have a special Ohio Mysteries tonight. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. And Steve, happy anniversary. (laughs) Happy anniversary to you, too. Did you think we would last two years? No, I thought, you know, we'd give it a shot and see how it goes. And if we were successful, yeah, probably. But most likely, it would probably be something that would only last a year yeah, I will admit, after, especially after we added a 10-minute mystery to the lineup and started doing two mysteries a week, I secretly began to wonder how long we'd make it. Mm-hmm. But Ohio clearly is a state with a lot to hide. There's probably a lot more there, too. I know that we have a lot in the, you know, that's coming up, but there's probably even a lot more that we don't know about yet. Yeah, my notebook is still filled. Do you know how many episodes we've done? 140? 167. So listen, for our anniversary show, I thought I I would plan a few things for you. You know, I like to think of Ohio Mysteries as a community. We invite Ohio musical artists to exhibit their original songs. We invite listeners to come on and play armchair detectives on most of our episodes. So I'd really like to imagine you out there in podcast land with your morning cup of coffee or maybe your evening glass of wine, just relaxed and hanging out with us for a chat about how the year went. We've got some updates on episodes we've done, including three of our cold cases that identified a suspect just this year using the new technology of familial genealogy. Isn't that fantastic? It's something that those cold cases were for decades and they're just now being solved. And we just talked about them a year ago or or even less. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, these are cases that are like 30 years old being solved with this stuff. It is really exciting. And, you know, we've also got a, I've squeezed in sort of a two-minute mystery. I had a listener with a question that sent me into research mode, so... I'm going to throw that in and, oh, I don't know, some other stuff. Let's just get started. Thanks to Steve, we now have an Ohio Mysteries hotline. It's really been nice to offer listeners another way to reach out if they have any ideas for us to research or a general comment they'd like to share. Steve, do you know what that research number is? You want to throw that in right away? 234-738-0966. That's 234-738-0966. And our very first caller to the hotline was a nice lady in Mount Gilead, Ohio. That's the county seat of Morrow County in the center of the state. And she had a question about a tornado legend. We'll let her tell you about it. Play this one, Steve. Hi, my name is Kimberly Ohl, and I live in Mount Gilead, Ohio. I'm new to Ohio. I grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut, New York, Vermont. And I never really felt like Ohio is my home, even though I've lived here for eight years, until I started listening to Ohio Mysteries. Ohio Mysteries has been fantastic. It's really taught me a lot about the state and the people. And I just wanted to thank you guys. It's a great podcast. Um, I'm new to podcasts, and Ohio Mysteries has been my favorite. Um, One other thing, I live in a small town, Mount Gilead, um, just about... 40 minutes north of Columbus, and I don't like your tornadoes here in Ohio. They scare me, and I did hear that Mount Gilead will never have a tornado according to Indian legend, but I haven't been able to find anything out about that. Um, I just wanted you guys to know that the tornadoes do seem to jump and go around us in Mount Gilead, (laughs) but anyway, if you have any information about anything like that or any upcoming podcast on the weather in Ohio, I'd love to hear something about that. Really enjoyed your um, Erie, uh, about the storms that come up on Lake Erie. It was really interesting. So anyway, um, thanks again, and you guys are doing a great job. Thanks, Paula. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, Catherine. Hey, thanks for reaching out. Who doesn't love Native American folklore? So I went straight to the Mount Gilead Library with this one. If you don't know it already, librarians are the best resources you will ever find. And I figured if the town had some supernatural protection from tornadoes, a local librarian would know. The good news is one of the librarians had heard this legend. She didn't know the details, just the gist of it. Unfortunately, it appears to be a strictly oral tradition. They couldn't find anything that had been written. And I struck out on the internet and in the newspaper archives. But, Steve, I think I understand why this legend persists. I know you're going to be really interested in this because you're a, a weather buff. Oh, yeah. There's a website called geostat.org that tracks all tornado touchdowns. So you can go there and put in the name of a town, and it will give you a list of all the touchdowns that were in or around that town over the past 75 years. And guess what I learned, Steve? What did you learn? Mount Gilead is immune to tornado. Immune? 
Okay, maybe maybe it didn't say that exactly, but get this. The site documented that 20 tornadoes have touched down within a 17-mile circumference of Mount Gilead since 1958, but none of them came any closer to the town border than 3.7 miles. Oh, wow. That sounds almost immune, don't you think? Right. Usually it's cities that are kind of immune, the dense cities, because they give off so much heat. You know, tornadoes usually cannot form in that area. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Well, in Mount Gilead's case, some of these tornadoes really flirted with the town. They danced right on the outskirts. There was this horrible F1 tornado in 81 that killed three people, injured 53 and ravaged the town of Cardington. That's just a five-minute drive away. In 1990, there was a tornado that sped through the northeast corner of the county, messing up at least 20 houses and businesses. That one stayed eight miles away. And in 1965, a tornado in nearby Westfield almost leveled that community. But if we are scoring tornadoes like a ball game over the past 75 years, it would be Mount Gilead 75, tornadoes zero. So there you go, Catherine. I, I hope we didn't jinx her. I think we jinxed her. I hope we didn't jinx her. No, I don't think we jinxed her. Okay, so in recent weeks, we've had three emails asking the very same question about something I didn't even know was happening. Here's the issue described by Don Cohen. I was trying to share an older episode with my daughter I had listened to on the podcast app on my Apple phone. I could no longer access the older ones. Will your episodes after a certain amount of time only be available on the pay site? If so, how long will I have to listen before they are removed? All right. So what did we find out about this? Okay. I I had to investigate this one, too, because I thought they were all still out there. And what I found was that most of the podcast apps do limit the number of episodes available. It looks like maybe about 100 episodes, which is a lot. But since we've done almost 170, that still means there are a bunch that you can't hear through those podcasts. No worries. There are two options for finding those older episodes. The first, go to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Click on the episodes tab that's up at the top. And you'll find a full list of all of our episodes and then a list of our 10-minute mysteries. Now, if you click on the 10-minute mystery, the episode will just start playing right away. If you click on the full episode, it will jump to a page about that episode. And there, just look for the line that says, if you don't have a favorite podcast app, click here. And you click there and it'll just start playing. Here's the second option. Spotify. Turns out Spotify has kept all two years worth of episodes still up. So download the Spotify app or or go to their website on your device and sign up for a free Spotify account. And when you search for Ohio Mysteries, you'll see all of our episodes. They're in order of most recent to oldest. So if you're looking for an older episode, just uh, scroll on down to the bottom. I must say the best option is definitely go to our website because you can click on any of those episodes and you're going to see some of the research material you use during the episode. Yeah, and you can pick and choose. You can pick and choose the ones that sound most intriguing to you. Although the um, benefit of the Spotify one is if you go to Spotify and click on 
the first one that you didn't hear, when it's done, it automatically jumps to the next one, almost like it's playing songs. So if you're like working out or taking a long walk or driving, it'll just keep bouncing down through all the episodes you haven't heard. And so that's that's a fun option. Absolutely. Steve, here's my favorite part of this episode. Updates. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. If you follow true crime, there is nothing more thrilling than watching modern technology finally catch up to a killer. And this year, we have seen it happen to three cases that we covered on Ohio Mysteries. Yes. And if I recall, all three used forensic genealogy to identify someone authorities believe is the killer. That's right. Do you remember who they were? Can you give me one? Uh, I remember one was the Deadly Holidays, Barbara Blatnick. That's it. So Barbara Blatnick, she was part of the third episode we ever did. As Steve said, it was called Deadly Holidays. She was just 17 years old and living in her Garfield Heights home with her parents when someone took her life the week before Christmas in 1987. She went to a party that night not far from where she lived, but she never made it home. The next day, her body was found in Cuyahoga Falls on an access road that leads to Blossom Music Center. She had been raped and strangled. On this one, Cuyahoga Falls police teamed up with a nonprofit group called Project Porchlight. Project Porchlight was started by an investigative journalist and author, James Renner, and they raised $6,000 to pay for the testing of DNA found under Barbara's fingernails. Now, Renner said it was a real challenge. Barbara's own DNA was mingled with that of the person she had scratched, and it had to be separated marker by marker. Then, once they had the male DNA isolated, that's when investigator Colleen Fitzpatrick and her familial genealogy team took over. They ran the DNA through genealogy databases where people volunteer—they voluntarily give up their DNA— and they were able to identify the cousins of whoever's DNA was under Barbara's fingernails. So they used that as a clue to build a family tree, and they started looking for possibilities. And they zeroed in on a family with four brothers named Zastonic. 
and the 67-year-old brother James, living in Cleveland, looked to be an interesting option because he worked at a factory near where Barbara disappeared. Well, police were able to obtain DNA from him, and they confirmed he matched the sample that they had on file. So in May, police arrested James Zastonic and charged him with Barbara's rape and murder. He has pleaded not guilty, and gosh, Steve, I get this, in July, he was released on a $35,000 bond while he awaits trial. Wow. I didn't think you could get bond that easy in a case like this, but... Me neither. Anyways, Astonic would have been 34 years old at the time of Barbara's death. He was never a suspect in this case, and his only record was for exposing himself to two Akron women back in 1984. That was three years before Barbara's murder. Barbara's family said they had never heard of him. Now, the second case that got solved this year, Kelly Ann Prosser. Now, Kelly was eight years old in September of 82 when she was abducted while walking home from school in Columbus. Two days later, she was found beaten, raped, and strangled in a cornfield. This past June, Columbus police and familial genealogy researchers traced DNA in the case to a man named Harold Warren Jarrell. Jarrell is dead. He died in Las Vegas, but they were able to confirm the link by obtaining DNA samples from Jarrell's living relatives. And just as in Barbara's case, he was never a suspect in Kelly's murder. Although I got to wonder, Steve, why he wasn't, because it turns out, get this, just eight months before Kelly was killed, he was released from jail after having served time for abducting a different eight-year-old from Columbus back in 1977. Wow. I mean, how could his name not have come up? Right. I don't understand that. Anyway, police said Jarrell worked for a local radio station in Columbus for much of the 70s and 80s while holding other jobs throughout his time there. And finally, case number three. I know this one was near and dear to both of us because we interviewed her daughter, but this was the story of Rachel Johnson. Now, Rachel was a 23-year-old single mom who had been raped, beaten, stabbed multiple times, then set on fire and left on an Akron street back in 1991. Her daughter was three years old at the time. She's now grown. And if you recall, Rachel's was the case where she was riding home from a bar with a friend when they got a flat tire and they pulled over into a store's parking lot Rachel didn't want to stay in the disabled car, so she got out and got into the car of someone who had pulled in behind them and disappeared, and she was found dead a few hours later. Well, this March, Akron police arrested 57-year-old Daniel Lee Rees and charged him with aggravated murder. He was 28 at the time of Rachel's murder. Unlike cases of Barbara and Kelly, where the new suspects were strangers that seemingly fell from the sky, Rachel's family was shocked to learn they knew the man accused of killing her. Incredibly, he had moved across the street from where Rachel's daughter grew up. He even gave her her first motorcycle ride. And he trained Rachel's sister when she was hired by the same printing company where he worked. And what's really strange is he was... He was training the sister of the woman he killed. And he knew it. I mean, his sister was interviewed in stories saying, I I even hugged this man. He knew who I was. 
Anyway, this case was stone cold in 2013 when investigators said they had tested dozens of possible suspects against the DNA they had collected in the autopsy of Rachel. And it was only through forensic genealogy that led detectives to the doorstep of Daniel Lee Reese. Detectives literally collected his trash to get his DNA for testing. And finally, we've got some breaking news on a case we did just a couple of weeks ago. We did a 10-minute mystery on the unsolved murder of Lori Ann Hill. Now, Lori lived in Swanton, Ohio, straddling Fulton and Lucas counties, where the 14-year-old was a freshman at Swanton High School. In 1985, she left the Halloween party after a fight with her boyfriend and vanished. After four days of searching, Lori's body was found by a deer hunter in a brushy field in the village of Wassian. A former boyfriend, Walt Zimbeck, was a suspect for a long time, and 23 years after her death, a new investigator who opened the cold case files thought he had enough circumstantial evidence to take his chances before a jury. But Zimbeck had a pretty good alibi. He was out with other friends that night. And there was also some really interesting testimony from a man who said his cousin, Billy Jack, who by then was dead, had told him how he had raped and killed a girl in the Iron Coffins clubhouse. There was enough doubt during that trial that the jury couldn't decide the case and Zimbeck was released. Then in 2016, all eyes were on a new suspect. A Fulton County man named James Worley was arrested for kidnapping a 20-year-old Toledo business student named Sierra Joggin by knocking her off her bike and then assaulting and killing her. When they searched a barn on his property, they found this sort of torture chamber. Worley, who is 61 now, has never been charged in Lorianne Hill's murder, but given the similarities in the two cases, their proximity, and the fact that authorities believe Worley is probably a serial killer, because there are several unsolved murders of young women in that area, his name has become attached to this case. So here's the update sent to me by an Ohio Mysteries listener who lives in that area. Just this past weekend, the Fulton County Sheriff's Department and the FBI Evidence Response Team went to the Fulton County farm where Worley killed Sierra Joggin and they took earth moving equipment with them. The house is on Fulton County Road 6, just outside Delta. That house was actually purchased by Sierra Joggins' relatives after Worley was convicted. They wanted to demolish all the structures on the land. Authorities had clearly looked the property over after Worley was caught. But this week, two years after Worley started serving his sentence, they wouldn't say exactly what they were looking for now, only that it related to their continuing investigation into him. Clearly, they think there is more to discover because they brought in the backhoes. I saw photos showing huge piles of dirt where the soil is being dug up. Whatever they are looking for, let's hope they find it and it gives another family some closure, maybe even Lorianne Hill's family. So, Steve, you know, we've covered dozens of unsolved murders that have DNA evidence on file. Given how these decades-old cases are getting solved, can you think of some that you might expect to get resolved in 2021? 
Absolutely. Amy Mahalovic, I think we're very close on that one. Yeah, J- even James Renner, I think he he knows we're pretty close as well. Uh, Brad Bellino, definitely, I think, is a very good possibility. And Lorianne Hill. Those are my three. I think those three might be the next three. So, And hopefully more than three. Anyway, I'm feeling pretty good about the chances of some, some Ohio families getting some resolution in their cases. Okay, for our first anniversary, we surveyed listeners about their favorite episodes. We broke them down by category, and I started to try to do something like that this year, but then I realized we've just done way too many episodes. But before I dropped the idea, I did ask a question, and I thought I would share the results. The question was, what episode this year surprised you the most? whether it was because you had never heard of it before or, you know, maybe there was some twist or fact that you didn't know about it. So I thought, you know, why not share the answers? Because if you haven't heard every episode, you might appreciate the suggestions. Well, several folks picked the 10-minute mystery we did on the 1848 case of the McAdams family. You remember this one, Steve? Oh, yes, definitely. This was the case of the farmer's family where his wife and almost all of his kids died one at a time, always coinciding with the visit of an estranged daughter. And in hindsight, you know, a century later, people and medical professionals are saying this was almost certainly a case of her poisoning her family one at a time. You know, that case is so old, and there was never an arrest or ruling of homicide in any of those deaths. So it's a story that could have simply faded with history. Those tombstones of that family, some of them have been knocked over, the sandstones fading. But in the late 19th century, some witnesses came forward with their suspicions. So somebody wrote about it, and that really secured this mystery for history. Now, another story that we did this year that got multiple votes was an episode we called Gangsters and the Dynamite Murder. (laughs) Yes. This is what happened in Wyandotte County. It was a case where a couple of men involved in organized crime decided to silence a partner and did it by killing him and then attempting to hide the evidence by blowing up his body with TNT. You would think they would go with fire for that one. TNT is kind of volatile. You know, you don't you handle that wrong. You're going to blow up, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, they caught these guys like, well, it's still a, a mystery in that they didn't have enough evidence to put either of these guys away for it. But they identified the two likely suspects within like a couple of days. Right. So they were not doing a good job of it, although apparently they did a good enough job that they were never you know, convicted of it. But the result of that TNT explosion was this patch of forest that was turned into a gruesome blast zone covered in blood and body parts. And we learned about this case because one of our listeners, Ashley Payton, she asked us to take a look into it because she had always heard that her grandfather helped the local farmer 
pick pieces of flesh out of his trees. Wow. So, yeah. So that episode was a surprising one. So here's here's just a few other stories that surprised people. Uh, we did a 10-minute mystery that we called the New London Skeleton. That's a story about unidentified remains found in the Huron County village of New London. And that was particularly surprising because these remains were found very close to where the body of Amy Mahalovic was located. And folks are really hoping that when Amy's murder is solved, and there is every reason to hope her murder will be solved, that the skeleton in New London might be solved as well. Yeah, because killers usually have a dumping ground, you know, a favorite place to dump. And they kill more than once. A stranger killing, you know, if you have a stranger killing, he didn't end there. Now, another one that got some votes, the harassment of Bill and Dorothy Wacker. Now, that's the story where there was this couple in Massillon that's in Stark County, and they were hounded for a decade from the 80s into the 90s. There were phone calls, door knocks, cryptic notes, break-ins, and twice a home invasion that resulted in injury. Police could never figure out who was harassing this poor couple. And I think the element of surprise here was the idea that this could go on for 10 years without anyone catching them. Right. And I know this this next one also surprised you, Steve. This one was called Michael Swango, Doctor of Death. You remember this one? Absolutely. I definitely remember this one. I mean, you hadn't heard. This guy was a prolific serial killer. He started killing his patients in Columbus in the early 1980s. And despite being suspected after his very first murder, he was still unable to go on and poison and kill dozens of people, not only in the United States, but abroad. I remember when we were doing this episode, it was a live 10 minute mystery, uh, which you can find on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search Ohio Mysteries. We had somebody in there who worked at the same hospital, of course, like 20 years later, but she still hears stories about him. Oh, yeah, that was a nice surprise to have her on there commenting about that. But, yeah, most of uh, everybody else who was listening were like, who's this guy? And I'm like, how did we forget him? Because... He he was a bad one. He was a bad one. Okay, another one that got votes. And Steve, this one is in my top three when it comes to surprises of the year. Eugene the Mummy. Oh, let's take a car ride with Eugene the Mummy. Yes. Oh, my God. This is the case where a man was found dead in Sabina. That's in Clinton County. This was back right as the Great Depression was getting ready to take off, and he appeared to be a drifter who was looking for work, and he died of natural causes in a field. So a local funeral home embalmed him and put him on display, asking people to come take a look, hoping that somebody would recognize him. And this grew into a nearly 40-year-long roadside attraction, estimated to have been visited by 1.5 million people. So Eugene, and to Steve's reference, high school kids, they would kidnap Eugene and take him on joy rides or use him for pranks. There was one story where they put him in the back of a convertible and went and had hot dogs at the local drive-in with Eugene sitting in the back. Oh, my gosh. Eventually, the funeral home buried him and gave him a marker, but I just couldn't believe how long that went on. So how about you, Steve? Any episodes that totally surprised you that aren't already on this list? I hope you're going to go into the UFO. Yes, let's add that one to the list. The Trumbull County UFO. 
Here's a case where dozens of officers from half a dozen agencies all see, document, and chase this UFO in the 1990s, none of them able to explain what the heck it is. But the really surprising part of this, it never made the news. Nobody talked about it. It was only discovered accidentally by a UFO researcher years later. That researcher, Kenny Young, he's no longer alive, but he is the only reason it was eventually revealed and even made it to some TV shows. So should we tell them how we came across this case? Yes, tell us, Steve. <laughs> okay. So I was I, I like to listen to the radio or podcast before I go to sleep. And I had on Art Bell his old episodes. And I woke up at like 3 a.m. to go use the restroom. And I came back, put my head on the pillow, and I heard Trumbull Cotting UFO. And then that's how, how this got started. I'm glad you were being very observant because, see, if you hadn't heard that, we wouldn't have known about this. So. Right. Good also, for you. Also in Michigan in 1994, the same year in March, in Holland, Michigan, there was the same type of UFO. There was a, a police chase, 911 calls, the same description in the sky as well. Wow. We want answers to this. Absolutely. After I pass away, I'm going to come back and haunt you and give you the answers to this stuff. So don't be scared when you see me standing at the foot of your bed giving you answers to some of these mysteries, Steve. <laughs> Go ahead and do that. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Okay, before we close, just a couple more updates. We have done not one, but two stories associated with John Wilkes Booth. He's he's the uh, mascot of the Ohio Mysteries now. The, he's also the assassin of President Abraham Lincoln. 
And we heard an interesting anecdote from one of our listeners. Katie, by the way, she's also a co-host of Murder Road Podcast. She wrote us after a trip she took to Seattle in which she stumbled across a mummy that was unidentified, but the folks displaying him gave several explanations of who he might be, including John Wilkes Booth. (laughs) Now, for lack of a real name, they call him Sylvester. He's at um, Ye Old Curiosity Shop on Seattle's waterfront. And according to one news story, he's been an attraction there since the 1950s, which is interesting because if you'll recall, one of the stories we did on Booth involved a corpse that traveled the carnival circuit for decades with many arguing that Booth was never killed in that tobacco barn by federal agents. And they hid the fact that he had actually got away. Does this mean that Sylvester belongs to those people in Barberton? Well, the corpse of John Wilkes Booth, of the alleged John Wilkes Booth that traveled in the carnival, is legally owned by a family that was in Barberton, Ohio. Okay. Sylvester is the mummy in Seattle. Now, the Barberton-owned mummy disappeared at some point and nobody knew what happened to it i believe it disappeared right around the 50s and the sylvester in seattle has been there since the 50s interesting you know i wondered if if it might be the same one so i I took there are actually photos online of both of these corpses and i tried to compare them there are some similarities they have the same mustache Um, the hair looks a little different but then again it's decades between these two photos so who knows what this poor corpse has been through but you know look i know the folks who do familial dna have their hands full finding killers and we certainly don't want to pull them away from that important work but you know in a perfect world it would be great to test sylvester and even our own eugene the mummy and find out who they belong to we certainly have the technology to figure it out the real question here is since you looked at sylvester would you sleep next to the mummy, just like those uh, two people who kidnapped them? Who kidnapped the John Wilkes from Booth the, one? From the carnival no. member? Oh, okay. Yes, yes. The uh, the carnival people who had the John Wilkes Booth mummy talked about how they would sleep on either side of it because they were afraid somebody would steal it. No, 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 I, w- I would not do that. Steve, how about we close out this segment of our program with another caller from our Ohio Mysteries Hotline? You got it. Here's one. Hello, Ohio Mysteries. This is Heidi Baxter calling to tell you that I really enjoy your show. I just listened to the horrific shipwreck, and I am just enthralled at all the information you were able to find. When you were talking about the money belts and the coins stitched into their clothing, I thought, wow, is that detail found? You always amaze me. Well, thanks again for a great story, and I love what you do. Keep it up. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Honey Brother is a psychedelic rock and soul group from Youngstown, Ohio, made up of Gabriel Davis on vocals and bass, more guitars by Nick Frank, Dan Mihilarakis, and Mike Rich, 
and Jess DiLorenzo on drums. Tonight, we're featuring their song, Get Out, which is a musical exploration of the anxiety attached to the ideas of carpe diem and coming of age, but done with love, hope, and groove. You can find their music on Spotify, Apple Music, and CD Baby, and you can follow the group on Facebook and Instagram. Well, let's have another listen to Get Out. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Makes me want to listen to it. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, well, let's have another listen to Get Out by Honey Brother, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adderin for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening at the Family of Ohio's. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Mysteries.
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.